I'm Carrie Ann. And I'm Allison. And this is Podcast Without an Audience, where two friends pick two topics and find intersections. Or not. And I am drinking coffee. And it is 2 30 in the afternoon. It's really good coffee. Is it? I'm glad you liked it. Mine is different than yours because I ran out of the other pods. You have Dunkin' Donuts. It's really good coffee. I have Lowe's brand. I'm so sorry. It's okay. It was on sale. The Lowe's brand or Mm -hmm. the Dunkin' Donuts? The Lowe's brand. Oh, well. K-Cups are so expensive. Yeah. Even though I, like, I would love to, like, get into coffee, but I can't. I just, I can't. Battery acid, hot bean water, (laughs) all the above, I'll take it. (laughs) I have been, like, weighing ADHD brain things. So, Mm -hmm. ADHD brain really likes individual use things because it's easier and Mm -hmm. there's less cleanup afterwards versus you know, brains that just can make a pot of coffee and remember to go back and clean the pot later mm-hmm. and do all the 15 steps that are required to make coffee for the next morning. My brain doesn't do that well, but mm-hmm. I still attempt. Yeah, you're a coffee love her. I am. I'm thinking about getting into cold brew. Ooh. That sounds like a fun summer project, that right? It is. Yeah, Maybe that sounds nice. I was thinking about kombucha. <gasps> oh, I love kombucha. Yeah. I spend like $3 every other day on kombucha. So I made like, kombucha for a while. You did? Mm-hmm. When I was living in uh, West Virginia, in Shepherdstown. Where, where did, what's the little thing called? The SCOBY? Ugh. Yeah. Barf. It was really satisfying to touch. Oh, no. It's I super satisfying. It would be. Oh, my gosh. <gasps> I, you're not supposed to touch it very much, but. Yeah, I, they're like, don't, do not touch, do not yeah. pass go, do not collect $200. <laughs> what kind of flavors did you make? I never knew this about you. Really? Mm-mm. I thought for sure I brought some home for you at Mm-mm. one point. Guess not. I'm Keeping a horrible best friend. Yourself. <laughs> Typical. <laughs> I just did black tea with honey and sugar. Oh, okay. Yeah. Super simple. Mm-hmm. But my supervisor at the time had been making kombucha for like 20 years. Oh, wow. She was a through and through hippie. And she gave me one of her little scoby little babies. Scob- also would be a good name for a pet. Oh, I'm sure that there are many scobies out there. Add that to the list. Uh, All right, my dear. Let's hop into some psychology and history. That was actually a good lead-in because there's a really cute baby name in my story for today. Oh, is it? Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm ready. All right. So you have asked me on multiple occasions to cover fears and phobias. (gasps) Are we doing fears and phobias today? (laughs) Just a little bit. Um, it's too much to do in one episode, so this is about to be my series. If you get conspiracy theories as a series, I get fears and phobias yes! as a series. I'm super, super excited. My body is ready. <laughs> I figured I'd make your day on a Sunday. Yeah. Oh, thank God. I'm so exhausted, so that it's made my brain wake up a little bit. Good. All that extra serotonin just or dopamine or whatever just hit. It's not going to be a continual series, so stay tuned for part two coming at you in two to 12 months. Foreseeable future. (laughs) So there are a lot of ways that fear has been studied from behaviorism, genetic predisposition, and other cognitive and social learning models. There's also been some psychoanalytic work done on fears. The origin of fears and phobias are similar. So today we're going to talk about classical or Pavlovian 
conditioning. Pavlov. Pavlov. I'm going to mix two studies together. Mm-hmm. One is the little Albert experience of 1920. Aww. And the other is Pavlov. So, but isn't Albert just the cutest that name? That is super adorable. It's not his real name, which I think makes it a little bit better. Mm. I kind of love that they nicknamed a kid Albert. Yeah, I'm envisioning him as a tiny teddy bear. I, mm-hmm. That's about what he looked like. He was like a, a cute situation. wee child. Oh, I know. This is with the, with the, with the bunny. And the rats. And the rats. And the rats. Ooh. The bunnies and the rats. Okay. So, first... We use fear and phobia, or at least I do, pretty interchangeably in my day-to-day life. So I want to make a really quick distinction between what is a fear and what is a phobia. Yes. Mm-hmm. Do you have any guesses? Uh, fear, one of them has base in, in like, your experiences. Mm-hmm. Like, fear is probably, well, I don't know. No, okay. I don't know. I really only asked you a question so I could take a sip of my coffee. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Also, you're not wrong. Fear is a natural emotion that protects people from harm and imminent danger. So fear is either based on something that's actually occurring around you or Mm -hmm. something that you perceive or your body perceives to put you in imminent harm. Danger. Danger. A phobia is an excessive fear or anxiety related to specific objects or situations that are out of proportion to the actual danger that they present. So... A fear of heights and flying? Natural. Humans were not designed to fly. Mm-hmm. A phobia of house spiders that makes you question whether you should burn your entire house down is a phobia. Um, hmm. I don't like that particular example. That seems... The phobia or the fear example? The phobia. Seems pretty on the nose. I mean... For some of us in this room. For maybe both of us in mm-hmm. this room? That is correct. Yeah. Yes. There. Was, I saw a huge spider recently really and by huge it was like the size of the tip of my pinky do you remember the house that i lived in off of elm Uh uh-huh all those years ago not now i do not live on elm but there was that patio off the side of the house there was a wolf spider the size (gasps) of my hand no the porch was never used literally we (laughs) saw that on like the day move-in day and like never mm -mm. nope 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 hard pass yeah, no, wolf spiders are terrifying, and they're huge. They're huge! And they will leap onto your face. Why does anything need to be that big? I don't know. Anyways. As Dolly sprawls out on the bed. <laughs> Dolly is ready. Her body is Her ready. Chunk. Okay, so phobias cause significant dysfunction dysfunction or discomfort due to avoidance behavior. So phobias are things that you go out of your way to avoid. Like my fear of fish. Or phobia Mm -hmm. of fish. Like, I go out of my way to avoid being around fish whenever possible. So, question. Let's talk about the ocean. Because the ocean is really, like... Terrifying? Yeah. You can't see the bottom. You don't know what the fuck is in there. We also haven't explored, you know, 100% of it. Or We haven't even explored, like, more than 10%, (laughs) I don't think. So, 90%. So, that, to me, would be, like, a fear. Like... Maybe not fish specifically. So you don't think that, like, a shark is going to come? Oh, I absolutely do. But I'm also afraid of minnows. Like, I don't want to put my feet off the edge of a dock and have minnows come around my feet. So you're not envisioning you dying by 
animal consumption. You're I don't. just what let's let's unpack that. <laughs> I don't actually know where this fear comes from. I think there might be an epigenetic link. Like maybe I'm related to mm. who was it? The Jonah who uh-huh. was swallowed, by, swallowed the whale. by the whale. Um because I have a cousin that I didn't meet until almost adulthood who is also afraid of fish. Hmm. I think my brother is too. Mm-hmm. Like there are several of us in this family who are all weirdly afraid of fish interesting so okay because i was trying to get back to like is fear of the ocean like a fear or a phobia but you're specifically fish so that would be a phobia yes there's also a phobia i forget what it's called right now that's a phobia of open water um and there have you seen the picture of like laying or a surfboard and someone's standing on the surfboard and there's a giant ass whale or shark or shadow underneath it yeah or just a hole a hole like uh, in the ocean where does it go we don't know i don't like it's terrifying okay so phobias we're like on land and i'm still having anxiety (laughs) find yourself a best friend who understands your phobias that's my advice to everyone okay so to start us off we have to go back to the 1920s there's Mm -hmm. a nine-month-old who is referred to in this uh research project as little albert little albie Lil Albie has the shittiest luck because he gets volunteered to participate in an experiment with two psychologists, Dr. John Watson and his graduate student, Miss Rosalie Rainier. Their literal goal was to condition a phobia in an emotionally stable child. That was the goal. Hashtag 1920. <laughs> According to some textbooks, Albert's mother worked in the same building and as Watson and didn't know that the tests were being conducted. When she found out, she took Albie and they moved away, letting no one know where they were going. Wow, they got the fuck out of there. They got the fuck out. Wait, they didn't know Oh what they were so she knew that she they were they never got parental consent. <gasps> Fucking burn it down. Right? Nineteen twenty. She she didn't know that they had the baby. So here's a piece that I don't I couldn't find an exact answer to. Apparently, little Albert had lived in the hospital. So there are two theories about who Albert may have been, Mm -hmm. one of which was a young boy who was born about that time who had hydrocephalus and ended up dying at the age of six. Mm -hmm. So there's a theory that he'd been living in the hospital because he had this condition or whatever, and his mom was a nurse. Mm -hmm. So the... Dr. Watson would come in and take little Albert um, while his mom was doing her work stuff Mm -hmm. and then return him and she would never know. Wow. But yeah, they didn't have parental consent. We don't know who Albert is. Uh, We don't know why he was living in the hospital, but that's kind of a story. Oh, okay. All right. Yep. 1920s. Mm -hmm. Crazy time. So another theory is that his mom knew what was going on and felt coerced or unable to turn down the request for her baby to be used in Watson's experiment. Your boss is like, can I borrow your baby? And what are you going to say? Might be in jeopardy. Yeah. Both all of which are equally possible, I would think. Yeah. And they don't have consent forms the way that we do in 2020. Mm -mm. Like, or 2021 or whatever fucking year it is. It's hard to say. It's unclear (laughs) at this time. Yeah. I can't talk to an individual even twice removed without a consent form from, Mm -hmm. you know, for kids on my caseload. Mm -hmm. Um, So Watson and Rainier conducted the experiment to answer these three questions. Number one, 
Can an infant be conditioned to fear an animal that appears simultaneously with a loud, fear-arousing sound? I'm going to say yes. You would be correct. (laughs) Number two, um, would such a fear transfer to other animals and even inanimate objects? Also yes. Okay. And number three, how long would these fears persist? Your whole fucking life. (laughs) You are traumatizing a literal baby. (laughs) Yeah. So... Part of this should sound pretty similar to Pavlov and his dog. So in the 1890s, uh, Ivan Pavlov discovered that any object or event that a dog learns to associate with food would trigger a response. Mm -hmm. Salivating was specifically what he was studying. So the dog produced saliva when presented with food. How was he measuring that, by the way? I'm not really... Great question. Spit they is my phobia. actually put a uh-uh. thing in the... No, 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 no. I don't want to know. Okay. I don't, it was a rhetorical question. <laughs> so he noticed this initially when someone would deliver the dog's food to them. He would hear the footsteps and he would recognize the footsteps mm-hmm. and associate it with about to be fed. Uh. So Pavlov decided to start ringing a bell. Eventually, the dog began to salivate when he just heard the bell ring. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. And the food was present or not Mm -hmm. because he'd been conditioned to. Yeah. This is actually the exact experiment that inspired the Little Albert experiment. Dr. Watson wanted to know if this was something that could happen for humans, too. So let's just take a minute to think about all the ways that they could test this in humans rather than scaring the shit out of a nine-month-old. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm thinking pizza. If you rang a bell every time I was about to get some pizza, you best bet I'd start drooling mm-hmm. the moment I hear that bell. Yeah, so he wanted to convert, like, a food body response to, like, a traumatic fear. That's some... Right. I don't... We don't love it. To say the least. (laughs) They presented little Albert with a white lab rat, which are super cool. Rats are fine. For me, at least. I know a lot of people have phobias around rats, but Mm -hmm. whatever. They're fine to me. Yeah, I don't mind rats. Albert was not afraid and actually touched the rat a few times. They then presented him with the rat again, and Dr. Watson made a noise behind little Albert that caused him to cry. What was the noise, you ask? Thank you for asking. <laughs> they hit a steel bar with a hammer a behind bar his head. Oh. Like, a steel bar. I just bar. seen him with those big gong-looking <laughs> things. Like, bong. Symbols, yeah. Oh. Poor Albie. I know. Every time Albert went to touch the rat, Dr. Watson made this noise. Eventually, Albert developed a phobia of the rat, and that phobia began to extend to other things my question is like what's the impact on his hearing yeah like, i just can't... about that too what um because i doubt they gave him earplugs this is the 19 19... they didn't even ask his mom's consent no this he didn't get earplugs also <laughs> it's only one kid and and only because the rest of his life i think is pretty horrible but yeah you know i wonder like what, what was the plan like or are we gonna like get other people's babies and have like a little baby army and and, <laughs> and, and everyone's afraid of rats yeah just ruin a whole generation i mean they've ruined a whole generation of us with spiders i don't feel like people before our generation have the same phobia of spiders that our generation does but i don't know where that phobia comes from that's also like people not liking the word moist that's like a thing that like everybody's all of a sudden not yeah but it doesn't bother me Mm -mm. weird brains are weird humans are weird Mm -hmm. so this experiment was done a number of times and they eventually they could just present Albie with the rat and he would start crying Mm -hmm. 
After a five-day hiatus from experimenting, they brought him back to test and see if the fear had stuck. It had. Uh Uh-huh. And his fear had expanded to include other things. The family dog, a fur coat, a white bunny, and a Santa Claus beard made out of cotton balls. Mm -hmm. So anything small and white, Albert is now suddenly terrified of it. Can you imagine, like, being afraid of the family dog? No. This poor kid. Yeah. They continued to bring him back and realized that his responses were less severe each time. Um, The dying out of this learned response is called extinction. Mm. However, even in their last examination of them, he was still exhibiting fear responses. So this is basically what happens to little little Albert. He has been classically conditioned to have a phobia around white rats. So So studies like this just don't fly today. It's an ethical issue. Yes, Allison. Doesn't he die by suicide? Little Albert? Mm -hmm. No. I thought that he grew up and was like really set and had like a really terrible life. We don't know who he is. We don't? Mm -mm. He's in any mouse? Anonymous? (laughs) Thank you for clarifying. Yeah. Well, because they they refer to him as little Albert. No one knows who his mom is. Um, For some reason, maybe that's another study. There are several other studies where the... They traumatize babies. They traumatize babies and young children. and Yeah. Okay. Maybe that's another one. All right, Albie. If you're listening, which you're not. Nope. No, Albie. No, no Albie, no. No, he would have been He would have been the same age as Big Daddy. Yeah, he would have been. He'd be 101 100. now. Yeah, so there are two people. Like, they've essentially narrowed it down to two people that it could be. One died at the age of six years old from hydrocephalus. Mm-hmm, right, you said that. And the other one lived to be, like, into his 80s and always had a fear of like small white things well then uh, my money's on that guy right um however it could also be that he just had some phobias Mm -hmm. we do not know it's unclear unclear at this time like i said studies like this just don't fly today it's Mm -hmm. an ethical issue to give a baby a phobia for the sake of science the funniest part of this for anyone but little albert is that they didn't uncondition him once they were done, they were just like, here's a dose of childhood trauma. Bye-bye. Go and be fruitful. Mm-hmm. We'll um, see you in therapy in about 10 years. Right, exactly. There has been some research about how to unlearn these conditioned behaviors. Things like exposure therapy seem to be pretty common, but also we can use classical conditioning to unlearn classical conditioning. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, makes total sense to me at least. Okay, so let's talk critical evaluation okay of this um there's some doubt as to whether this fear response was actually a phobia i'm gonna call it a phobia like Mm. they were trying to condition a phobia in him Mm -hmm. but when albert was allowed to suck his thumb he showed almost no response so i think there was so much comfort and self-soothing in sucking his thumb that he didn't he wasn't worried about the loud sound behind him. Right. It took more than 30 times for Watson to finally take Albert's thumb out of his mouth to observe a fear response. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, how shitty do you have to be as a human to he's see like, a nine-month-old who's sucking his thumb because he's anxious mm-hmm. and be like, stop sucking your thumb so I can scare the shit out of you. Also, he's a baby. He's a wee little baby. So uh, he wasn't getting the, the the data that he wanted, so he had to make some type of change right. in Albert's behavior to get that response that he... Correct. ...wanted. There was also no control subject or um, objective measurement for the fear response. Right. So they, like, there, 
there was no way to measure what they were looking for or mm-hmm. the outcomes. Like we said earlier, there's also uh, speculation about who little Albert is. It's believed that he was raised in the hospital environment since birth, and because of that may have had a limited affect anyways. So other young children may have reacted differently if they'd already been exposed to more loud noises and things. And as mentioned earlier, this experiment was conducted before ethical guidelines were implemented in psychology, so there are some ethical violations. Mm -hmm. One, it's believed that this experiment was conducted without his parents' consent. Mm -hmm. Two, creating a fear response is an example of psychological harm. And three, Watson and Rayner did not desensitize Albert to his fear of rats afterwards. So there are lots of other origins for fears and phobias that we will totes be coming back to, but... This was classical conditioning and the little Albert experiment. All right, classical conditioning. Interesting. They didn't turn him back. It's like they put a spell on him, <laughs> left him in and, that state. And they did not turn him back into That's fucked up. The little prince. I don't love it. Me either. I still think it's interesting though, like thinking about the origins of our fears and phobias. I can directly tie my fear of spiders to my mother. Oh, Hi, really? mom. To this day, there is nothing in the world that makes my mom laugh harder than telling me that there is a spider somewhere on my being. Oh, on your being. <laughs> like, as a kid, I remember going into their bathroom and looking in the bathtub and there was a spider there. So I called my mom. I was like, hey, can you remove the spider? And when I turned back to look at the bathtub, the spider was gone. And my mom said, don't move. It's on your back. And I literally almost hit my head on the ceiling. And she still (laughs) dies laughing every time she tells the story. Uh, Classical conditioning. Yikes. Well, I was bit in the face by a dog as a child. And now you have a dog. Let's talk about that. Yeah. I mean, I've I've been afraid. I mean, I've been a cat person my whole life, probably because of that. What kind of dog bit you? A fucking Yorkie. Yorkies are awful. Well, not as bad as Chihuahuas, but they're close. Yeah, she was an interesting dog, and it took her forever to die. She lived for, like, 18 years. Was she your dog? She was not. She was oh. a family member's dog. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I mean, I've, I, that made me not love dogs. And I, and I never wanted to be close to them in my childhood, really. Yeah. Especially smaller ones. How old were you? I was Thanksgiving of the fourth grade. Oh, very specific. Okay. Mm-hmm. Clearly a traumatic experience for yeah, you. Yeah, I was in Boone. Remember when we went on our on yep, our retreat? It, I just realized who you were talking about. Uh-huh. Yeah. The house we drove by? Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Sorry, I can no longer see you because Dolly is now standing between us. Dolly, move and your butt. And it's hard to have a conversation with you when I can't see you. I'm here. Hey. I'm still here. Uh, well, I'm glad that you worked through your phobia enough to have Obi because yeah. he's pretty perfect. He's pretty cute. Pretty dang cute. All right, my friend. Are you ready? What do you have for us today? I am ready. Let's talk about the Great Depression. That is my topic. Uh, the Great Depression of 2020? Not mental health crisis of 2020. <laughs> but, and also not the Great Recession from 2008. We're talking about the Great Depression. Ah, of 1920. 1929. So the Great Depression was, I I sound like so happy I'm talking about it. (laughs) The Great Depression was a severe worldwide 
economic depression that took place mostly during the 1930s, beginning in the United States. So something that we'll talk about is that, like how it affected other countries, which I had never really considered, you know, before starting my research. Well, I think that that's just another way that our American public education system has failed us because how often growing up did you hear about the ways that our economy impacted any other economy? That's a great point. Shout out to public school. <laughs> so Sponsored ti- by public schools. Sponsored by public schools. The timing of the Great Depression varied across the world. In most countries, it started in 1929 and lasted until the late 1930s. It was the longest, deepest, and most widespread depression of the 20th century. Um, The Great Depression is commonly used as an example of how basically fragile (laughs) our system is. (laughs) The whole world? Uh Uh-huh. The whole economy? Which I thought was very true. And how interconnected. And I'm sure that you'll get into that a little bit more, but like it didn't just impact one area of life. It wasn't just. Right. Shout out to capitalism. (laughs) Fuck capitalism. Mm -hmm. The Great Depression started in the United States after a major fall in stock prices that began around September 4th, 1929 and became worldwide news when the stock market crashed on October 29th, 1929, which is also known as Black Tuesday. Between 1929 and 1932, worldwide gross domestic product, or GDP, fell by an estimated 15%. By comparison, worldwide GDP fell by less than 1% from 2008 to 2009 during the Great Recession. Wait, can you run that past me one more time? So... The percentage differences? You 15% the whole thing. By, as opposed to 1%. Wow, and just think how bad the yeah, 1% exactly. fall was. I can't even begin to fathom the 15% fall. Yeah. Some economies started to recover by the mid-1930s. However, in many countries, the negative impacts of the Great Depression lasted until the beginning of World War II. So that would be the end of the 1930s, Early early 1940s, depending on what part of the world you were in. Correct. The Great Depression had devastating effects in both rich and poor communities. Personal income... Tax revenue, profits, and prices all dropped, while international trade fell by more than 50%. More than 50%. 50%. Oh, shit. Unemployment in the U.S. rose to 23%, That's which like, is almost one in four. I was trying to do the math quickly, mm-hmm. but yeah. wow. And in some countries, it did rise uh, to as high as 33%. Wow. I wonder, like, the unemployment rate, what that um looked like in terms of race and Mm -hmm. gender i know that women weren't working as much Mm -hmm. right yeah we'll talk about that a little bit women were starting to basically had no choice but to enter the workforce in some situations yeah doing Um, whatever they could yeah and i think it hit different industries differently Mm -hmm. but regardless we'll talk about kind of the business aspect here in just a second right Construction was virtually halted in many countries, so no new businesses were really being built or, Mm -hmm. you know, Well, they couldn't afford... Not only could they not afford to build the buildings, but who was going to buy them? Right. Like, the entire world was broke. And farming communities and rural areas suffered as crop prices fell by almost 60%. So all of this is a damn mess. And we're going to talk about... Four reasons that kind of led to the depression and also why it continued for so long. And then we're going to bring it back up and talk a little bit more about 
what it looked like to live during the depression, what was kind of going on, and then I'm going to share some recipes at the end. I love a good recipe. You will not love these, I will tell you that. (laughs) So the first contributing factor to the Great Depression was easy money. So we know that we hear about the roaring 20s, right? Mm -hmm. There was so much Gatsby was out there throwing big old parties. Everybody was drinking illegally and having a great time. (laughs) And then drinking legally again. And then drinking legally again. Uh, Votes for women was happening. Yeah. Um, So there was kind of like a, like I equate it to like in 2019 when we were like, 2020 is going to be the best. And then it wasn't. Yeah. (laughs) There was that steep decline almost immediately. It was not. The first phase of the Great Depression was a massive boom during the Roaring Twenties, but this bubble did burst in 1929. Mm -hmm. Uh, For various reasons, the government in the 1920s created monetary policies that ballooned the quantity of money and credit in the economy. The key to understanding how the government policies caused the initial boom and bust of the Great Depression lies in understanding how business people and investors Uh, use interest rates to decide how and when to spend their money. Investors rely on uh, interest rates to gauge the level of risk for various investments. Mm -hmm. So that makes sense. A relatively low interest rate signals to potential investors that that taking out the loan is probably a safe bet. A high interest rate, on the other hand, signals to investors that money can be better invested somewhere else. Yeah, it's more volatile. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, if you you know, are looking for ways to invest your money, you're wanting to look for low interest Mm -hmm. so that you're making more bang for your buck. Yeah. So you're not spending more money on interest, which is what that means. That's the whole goal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The government's expansion of money supply artificially reduces and thus falsifies the interest rates and thereby misguides business people in their investment decisions. So the price of good increases because of this falsification of of numbers mm-hmm. and therefore businesses can no longer be profitable so right? everything skyrockets right yeah so in order to prolong the quote boom the banks may continue to inject new money into the system until they themselves are fearful of the bust and then they kind of retract it yeah, so we first have the stock market crash, and then the banks kind of start to collapse because they're loaning more money than they have. Well, and this is this is pre this is pre bust. Oh, okay. So this, this is leading is, up this to is it. What led up to it? Gotcha. Right? So people are getting loans all the time. They're keeping everything relatively low so that people are participating, but then that's not sustainable forever, right? right. So it's like. The bubble, the the balloon is like getting bigger and bigger, and then you know it's going to pop. Well, and then the loans have been, or the banks have been giving out so much money that when people go to the bank and ask for the money that's in their account, they just don't have it. People don't understand that banks don't have the amount of money that right. They, they don't physically have all of our money in there. It's all a number. I mean, like your paycheck is direct, quote unquote, direct deposited into your account. That's literally like a fake number. Yeah. They're putting a number into your account Mm -hmm. that reflects on your cell phone when you check. Yep. So the boom was built on the quicksand of inflation. What a metaphor. I know. Then comes to a sudden end. Ooh. Very ominous. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So the interest rates then adjust to reflect the actual market. Uh-oh. Yikes. Um, and then at this point, it's not affordable to anybody. And this makes sense to me because businesses are now, like, investing within their own companies. Right. So they think that all these people are coming, like, let's say if you have a hot dog stand. <laughs> all these people are coming to buy your hot dogs. But in reality... That's not the mo- that's not their money that they're spending, and so once that money is gone, they're not buying your hot dogs anymore. Right? But you just invested in ten more trucks because your projections, based on on people buying them, is that you're projected to be selling ten more times more hot dogs. Well, but you're not. And I think it it also sounds a little bit like um, the promises that we were made in going to college, which was mm-hmm. you go to college, you spend all this money, um, but it's going to be worth it because when you come out, you're going to make money. And actually, that's not been most of our experiences. Um, no, but it was kind of debt. based on this process of this is what our parents experienced, and therefore that's what they told us to do. Mm-hmm. And here we are, broke AF. Which is really interesting because our parents' generation, the baby boomer generation, yeah. were the ones who no longer were receiving pensions. Mm-hmm. Like, for the most part, like, reality should have been setting in really, like, that things always change. So it is interesting that they very much did preach the same kind of right uh, future yeah. projection. But shit happens. <laughs> Thank you, Forrest Gump. Thank you. Number two would be that President Hoover kind of created a lot of policies that were, like, eh, not great. Oh. So... Okay. As one does. Yeah. (laughs) So President Hoover signed the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act. Smoot. Smoot. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's the the sheriff's name from Fried Green Tomatoes, isn't it? Which also takes place in the 1920s and 30s, I think. Oh, the guy that's looking for... um, For Ruth's husband? Oh, what's his name? We have seen this movie so many times. Oh my God, what's his name? I can uh, uh, the, the the truck the truck being yep. lifted from the um I can quote every line from this movie why oh, can't I think of his name my god Hang on we got to google this Frank Frank Bennett Frank Bennett as Thank soon you. as it popped up on my screen I said Frank Frank Bennett Yep Frank Bennett Mhm Secrets in the sauce <laughs> <laughs> Okay so President Hoover signed the smoke Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act in June of 1930 some consider this act to be quote the most protectionist legislation in U.S. history. So Smoot-Hawley aimed to prop up prices in the American economy by keeping foreign products out. This sounds very similar to Detective Smoot coming into the fried green tomatoes uh, to the Whistle Stop Cafe. Keeping other people out, trying to find Frank. Trying to find Frank. If you could make only fried green tomatoes uh, correlations, that would be great. Challenge accepted. That's your homework. So this act raised American tariffs to record high levels, which practically closed the U.S. borders to foreign goods. Mm-hmm. Sounds similar to things we have experienced in recent years and presidencies. Right. So the idea was, you know, we're going to buy local. We're going to support each other. Mm-hmm. Um, however, in reality, that's not how things work. Each country has its industries and mm-hmm. it's things that it's known for. And like, even though you're in a depression, it doesn't mean that you don't want to buy vodka 
Because right. you really extra want to buy vodka <laughs> during the Depression. So, you know, just like little things like that. Like you're not... Well, and the global economy had... I mean, the global economy has been around for so much longer than this. Sure. But it was certainly much more sophisticated by the 1920s. And, of course, um, us closing our borders to international goods is going to impact us and the rest of the world. Like, why wouldn't it? We'll take coffee, for example. Like, we don't fucking grow coffee. And, like, <laughs> that's <laughs> and what people keeps need us- their fucking coffee. Yeah. America runs on Duncan. <laughs> I certainly do. Mm-hmm. Coffee and vodka are the two biggest reasons I could see to keep the borders open. Amen. All right. So, once the U.S. set up these these regulations, other countries essentially follow suit because it's a, a butterfly effect. Mm-hmm. Um, so, because we weren't exporting goods relatively, you know, the same levels, unemployment in other countries are being affected. So. Right people's livelihoods across the the world are being affected by decisions that we are making here. Mm-hmm. And so the depression spreads throughout the rest of the world. Wow. Like a pandemic or a plague. Or we could take that out. No, I think that that's super fitting. I'm just thinking that it's been up about 100 years, right? Like 90 years since the mm-hmm. Great Depression. And just thinking about how we continue to impact the rest of the world with our tariffs and you know economic packages and whatnot just how that's changed and developed and become even more intricate in the past hundred years yeah also i think there's an interesting commentary about the impact of capitalism here yeah and global capitalism and Mm -hmm. all the evils of capitalism and Mm -hmm. just uh the rich (laughs) trying the rich trying to get richer and Damn all those who stand between. Sure, you know the Trickle wealthy and their economics. Money. Ever heard of it? <laughs> Once or twice, maybe. Mm-hmm. So again, the idea was to keep everything internally. However, obviously that did not work. Um, American exports fell from 5.5 billion in 1929 to 1.7 billion in 1932. Wow! Yeah. Think of all the money lost through not exporting our goods. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Also, during this particular time, they started subsidizing the food industry, so crop specific. So we're talking about farmers. Uh huh. There were new regulations that um, you know paid back farmers for crops um, in advance, essentially. Well, and I think that you mentioned earlier um, something about something i heard 60 percent in relation to farmers and crops i don't remember exactly Mm -hmm. what the quote was but just thinking about the lack of money coming in of course they had to raise their prices sure and when they're still when they're now getting subsidy from the government are their prices coming back down are they maintaining those prices because they don't know how long subsidy is going to last exactly um they're just trying to survive too like i'm all for subsidizing farmers and farm production but there has to be some kind of, you know, cycle so that that money then lowers the prices of food so that people can still purchase the food. Well, yes. And I personally don't know enough about it to speak on it specifically. Mm-hmm. But from the research I've done, I know regulations change constantly and farmers are stuck in a weird position 
Yeah. It's really expensive to be a farmer and they're constantly in debt because of regulations and all that fucking bullshit. Well, um, and like you have a bad year of crops and you're behind or you have, um, you know, an excellent year, but then people can't purchase or aren't purchasing. So you're having to throw food away. Like I am more familiar with farming as a, like it relates to the meat industry specifically. Okay. So, like, chicken farmers, for example, like, they have requirements. They change their regulations for the housing that's required for these chickens to live in. Uh Uh-huh. Relatively, and they're, you know, they're hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right. So, you you buy those, you invest $400,000 into four chicken houses, um, and then you come in and, you know, you have your chickens, and then all your chickens die, or whatever it is, so... I know that it's tough for them. However, this particular subsidy in the beginning, so this is like the inception of this, right? Okay. So this is incentivizing farmers to grow less crops. So they're growing within the range that they can then be subsidized. So if you grow more, you know, there's no guarantee that if you're outside that percentage, you'll be reimbursed for that. Right. You don't know if people are going to buy it. It's not worth it for you to grow. So that then increases the price of crops and food in general that makes sense so it's just a fucking cycle yeah so number three is gonna be the new deal hashtag Hashtag. new deal so soon after hoover assumed the presidency in 1929 we know we had the incident and then there was the election the great depression oh that is i mean the 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 um stock market market crash crash. okay okay i'm back with you i was making sure there wasn't an incident with hoover that i wasn't aware of i mean i'm sure there was if you know probably probably you heard it here first folks (laughs) so hoover the new deal was roosevelt new deal was roosevelt so roosevelt is elected in 1932 And and he inherits a mess well hoover was a republican hoover was a republican and so and fdr was a democrat okay so we got a democrat good old democrat coming in with the new deal gonna fix things hoover was a republican and to be fair he did inherit he was like just elected and then they were like hey (laughs) crisis he made a lot of shitty decisions roosevelt also makes a lot of interesting decisions although people genuinely like generally look upon his presidency fondly yeah he was Um, pretty well loved So, Roosevelt persuaded Congress to pass the National Industrial Recovery Act, or the NIRA, which set up the National Recovery Administration, which is the NRA. Not to be confused with the National Rifle Association. That's exactly what I... Also the NRA. Right. (laughs) No, 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 Could be a little confusing to some people. (laughs) They are different things. National Rifle Association. The purpose of the NRA was to get businesses or business in general, to regulate itself. The president created the reemployment agreement calling for regulations associated with the number of hours an employee could work per week. And also, this is where we get hashtag minimum wage. Hashtag. So at this point, you would think that that would be a good thing mm-hmm. because we are pro-employee, right? Right. We want everybody, we want things to be fair for the worker, this also discusses, um, you know, the age, you know, employers usually forbid to, to employ children under the age of 16. Yep. Child labor laws. All of that good stuff is, is being discussed here. However, this turned out to be 
uh, bad for businesses because it was so far out of the fucking realm that they were paying and requiring employees to work. It was detrimental to businesses. So the businesses that were still, you know, still existed. So let's think of like factory workers. Mm -hmm. You know, you had 12 year olds working fucking 18 hour days for pennies. And now the that business can no longer afford to employ that child. Right. Well, and I think... Or anybody. Right. And it's kind of like our current conversation about raising the minimum wage. It's been like $7.25, $7.50 for years. Uh-huh. And there's now this push to make it $15 an hour. And what I keep hearing is it's not an overnight push. Like, you don't have to go in tomorrow and change the minimum wage to be $15 an hour. We just need to work up towards that. Because I hope that we have learned that, you know, businesses really can take a hit. There's also an issue of CEOs making so much, like disproportionately so much more money Mm -hmm. than the people who are doing the ground level work um, and asking them to, like, no one needs to be making a million dollars a year or five million dollars a year. I'm fine with people making money to support their lifestyle. Um, but if you're making multiple millions of dollars a year and you're paying $7 an hour to your employees, mm-hmm. like the Waltons, I just can't. And that is a federal regulation that can be trumped by state law. Right. So states have implemented changes and even cities like San Francisco and California in a, in and of itself has like, really progressive well, uh, rules and regulations. Puerto Rico as well has is very pro-employee. Yeah. Which and I even, appreciate. Even certain businesses too, like Costco does a really great job oh, of paying sure. all of their employees, even part-time people, um, a living wage of, I think it's $15 an hour and they get health insurance even if they're part-time. Yeah. Like that's huge. For sure. We got to care about people. Well, and that's how, you know, companies are like, hey, you know, I want to get my employees to stay, but they can go to Target and work for $14 an hour. Yeah. Um, you know, how do we compete with that? Yeah. That's our current, you know, and I'm I'm well, I'm with you. I think during this time, it was so skewed, just like it is today. It's the same argument, essentially. Yeah. And there's maybe not the understanding that we have now of when you raise minimum wage, then people who are making more money can invest in the economy. Like, you might have a momentary setback, but eventually it repays into the economy. Yeah. And also, oh, I can't. I just can't. Like, saving, it costs so much to live. That is why we are choosing to have children later. Mm-hmm. That is why people are choosing not to have children at all. I mean, that's not why, but that's one of the reasons. Yeah. Because, first of all, it costs, you know, seven grand to have a baby. And then you, it turns out you got to pay for them for a longer, longer time other than that. <laughs> Yeah, and that's seven grand to have a healthy baby. Like, imagine having a baby who ends up in the NICU. Oh, sure. Oh, gosh. And home ownership is ridiculously expensive. Yeah. Um, We're all, our generation is fucked. (sighs) You heard it here first. Or just most recently. (laughs) (laughs) So number four is going to be the Wagner Act and other related labor laws. So... The Wagner Act is going to be the act that implements the rights of employees as far as joining unions. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so this was like a really big blow, another blow to employers, right? Because they're like, oh, people can like band together and rise up against us. How scary. <laughs> um, so the Wagner Act of July 5th, 1935 radically changed American employment and business. It took legal employer and employee disputes over labor contracts or labor disputes in general. It took them out of courts and brought them under a new umbrella, which Mm -hmm. is the National Labor Relations Board. And that board became kind of like the jury and judge in those situations. Yeah. So the Wagner Act or the National Labor Relations Act was passed in reaction to the Supreme Court's basically dislike of the NRA and in its labor code. So they're like, well, we want to create our own regulations within our own yeah, businesses. Yeah. So it was a mess. Just create, you know, getting all this shit off the ground, you know, it's much more regulated and it's already implemented today. Like, can you imagine in its inception, businesses are like, what the fuck is going on? I would hate to work in HR <laughs> in this year, even though that wasn't even a thing. This is probably why... This is why we have HR. Yeah. (laughs) So this allowed for workers to basically advocate for themselves and get even higher wages. Mm -hmm. So all of this is happening all in such a short period of time. Everybody's just trying to look out for their families. Everybody's trying to run their fucking businesses. So there's just a big clash and a mistrust from citizens of authority, of Mm -hmm. banks, of uh you know their businesses that they're working for the government the government all of the above um so those are the four things that kind of contributed to it so very obviously financially motivated but what i want to transition into now is like what were people doing like how was it to live during this time for you know your average family i mean i imagine most people are kind of hunkered down and like just surviving as cheaply and efficiently as possible and that you really kind of hit the nail on the head there um but people did kind of allow themselves certain liberties um but kind of the big major overarching thing is that community became so important Mm -hmm. it's why the whistle stop cafe thrived amen and the bbq (laughs) so potlucks were this is like when they kind of hit their stride I love a good potluck. I love a good potluck. And like, if you're going to get together, because it doesn't matter how much money you have, you still crave being around other people. That never stops regardless. Community is always, always going to be there. Amen. Amen. I was just about to say that. Oh, so potlucks, you know, everybody, you know, BYOP. <laughs> um, and then also thrift gardens or community gardens were also becoming really big everybody started planting herb gardens and everybody was just trying to kind of grow their own shit yeah and later they became victory gardens i assume yeah for world war ii that is a good point also board games hashtag board games sponsored by hasbro (laughs) i wish i cannot wait to well, I guess now that the CDC has lifted regulations, we can... Oh, COVID's over. Haven't you heard? COVID's over. Let's Ugh. go have a board game night with some friends. When was the last time we had a board... It's yeah, been I would like a, two years. Not in public. 
no. our vaccinated friends sure yeah like in someone's front yard maybe oh i would love that that would be really nice i'll organize it please do i'll get back to you okay let me know send me an invite send us all an invite you're all invited <laughs> we'll live stream it um also uh miniature golf courses were thriving precious which is adorable how wholesome i know isn't that cute I bet miniature golf, like, because golf, you kind of have to own your own stuff. Golf is so fucking expensive. And it takes so long. Like, miniature golf is accessible for kids, and you don't have to own anything prior. Like, you can literally just show up, pay a penny or whatever it costs at the time, and just go have fun. Well, and I know nothing about the history of golf, so I don't know how old it is. Add that to the list. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. You know, our audience loves golf. <laughs> um, We're but, really catering, catering to a very specific. Sure. Those yeah. who like the Great Depression, golf, and... <laughs> the history of dentistry. <laughs> so, mini golf became a Depression-era craze, and more than 30,000 miniature golf courses sprang up across the country. And half of them were in Myrtle Beach. Amen. Oh, my God. <laughs> they have And the they're most still there. They have the most, like... Ridiculous. They're falling apart. I know. And there's something about them that's just so nostalgic. I think I've only ever even been to one, but it feels nostalgic to just look at them. I mean, they, they're lining they're the strip like, regardless of yeah. how successful they are. They're probably from, like, the 60s. They may not be quite as old as the 30s. You don't right? invest... I would say 80s, maybe. Okay. They're certainly horn and tattered. <laughs> like, you don't reinvest in a stegosaurus very often. I don't know about you, but I just bought a new one for my front yard. Oh, did you? Oh, you did. Completely. But the prices for the mini golf during the Depression was 25 cents to 50 cents per round. So, what I'm kind of thinking is, like, depending on where you're located... In a city, probably not so much. In the country, everybody's got land, so like, why the fuck not turn your turn your yard into a mini golf? Sure, you charge I mean? people to come in and play mini golf. Also, in the Midwest at this time, there's a huge like dust. Oh yeah, the dust bowl. The dust bowl. I mean, I don't know what was going on. That's not part of my research, but that was happening. So I don't think that that's necessarily the communities that were having the. It's hard to play mini golf in, in a, a dusty <laughs> fucking sand no. dune. I'm going to go ahead and say that this was, ex you're giving us the history of Myrtle Beach right. and <laughs> uh, fried green in Alabama mm -hmm. and Georgia. Mm -hmm. So um, this also, you know, women were entering into the workforce, like we had mentioned before, but it's also really important, sadly, to, to say that families um, were experiencing a lot of loss. And family units as a whole were, were breaking up relatively uh, well, regularly. Well, there's so much trauma happening collectively at this point. Like, and everyone processes trauma differently. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that people are really struggling, probably with mental health issues, um, in financial instability. Well, and I'm sure it's easier to, like, if you're going to leave your family, let's just preface this. If you're going to leave your family and, like, you're on the fence about, like, divorce, separation, mm -hmm. you know, a situation where you're financially struggling or any any area of trauma, that can definitely speed up that process. Oh, absolutely. You can rationalize that in your mind. Yeah. 
yeah. maybe a little bit easier. But also uh, regarding the family, uh, families on government support were less stigmatized during this time. Hmm. Um, I think that that does go back to the general kind of community discussion. Well, yeah, everyone was struggling. So how can you judge someone who's mm-hmm. receiving support? And how can you help them? How can you assist them? If we could get back to that, that'd be great. Let's go back. Not well, no, let's not go back. Let's not. But <laughs> let's bring that forward. Yes. Let's amen. destigmatize receiving government assistance yeah. for your basic needs. And something that I do want to mention is that community is not only just, you know, the people in your neighborhood. Of course, that's your direct community, but mm-hmm. Roosevelt kind of took it the next step forward. So the next portion we're going to be talking about is recipes. Oh. So the the White House was really good about, like, whenever he was on camera, he's not going to be eating, like, a five-course meal, even though he was definitely eating a five-course meal. For sure. Never going to be photographed doing that because he had to be in solidarity with his community. Like, he came to the presidency in a really terrible time. Well, and I think he did a really good job of figuring out ways to be relatable to the to. Americans like he's the one who started the fireside chats right on the yes, radio he is. Yes. so he really tried to make himself accessible um so that people felt supported and saw him as a positive leader and someone yeah. that they could trust well and let's talk about that for a second because radio was also really huge as it's a form Lil- of entertainment yeah tell little orphan annie found her parents exactly this is all happening in orphan annie times Radio was a way for you to find your information. It was also, you know, people who had been able to afford to go to the movies before Mm -hmm. might not have necessarily been able to afford them now. Right. So that was like the big thing, right? That was huge. Like cinema, that's a whole episode. Yeah. In and of itself. Um, And movies were still relatively new. Like they were also a lot of stage shows and performances. And things that they were no longer able to afford. But yeah, so radio was definitely huge. Um, But also within the home, we do have some of these really notable recipes for you to cook at home. But also, if you want a really awesome meal, head to our Patreon. (laughs) Become a pasta recipe. (laughs) Become a patron at any level and you will receive our fucking fantastic pasta recipe. Excellent plug. Thank you for that. Absolutely. But let's talk about things that are not as good. (laughs) So the first one is going to be, quote, poor man's meal, which is just That's what I'm having for dinner tonight, probably, actually. (laughs) Is it Taco Bell? (laughs) (laughs) That was lunch. That was lunch. So during the Great Depression, potatoes and hot dogs were very inexpensive. So many meals included either both or either of those things. So uh, the poor man's meal is considered to be where you peel and cube a potato, fry that shit in a pan with oil and some chopped onion until it's brown and softened, and then you add slices of hot dogs to cook over a medium, to cook a few minutes, and then you serve it. Sounds like uh, bangers and mash. Yes, and uh, hash browns and ham, which is still a really common breakfast in the South. And a lot of these, too, are stuff people eat today and also like the kind of like some of them are like cross-culturally applicable like they're yeah just well and i mean our grandparents 
would have, or and maybe in some cases, great grandparents would have been of this generation. Mm-hmm. So this is probably food that when you went to visit your grandparents, yeah. you were eating because it's what they grew up on. Absolutely. So the next one is creamed chipped beef. And how do you chip a beef? I have no idea. <laughs> you so, put it in a roux. Yeah, there is a roux, I think. So made with dried and salted beef, creamed chip. It's hard to say. Creamed chipped beef was an easy and cheap dish that originated in eastern Pennsylvania by the Dutch country. Oh. So probably Lancashire, I would think. That'd be my guess. Um, To make it yourself, you melt two uh, tablespoons of butter in a pot over a medium heat and add two tablespoons of flour to make a roux. Shout out to roux. I was right. Um, Roux from the Hunger Games. That's exactly Um, what I was thinking. (laughs) So you slowly whisk it with a cup and a half of milk until it thickens into a like a broth or i guess um and then you add dried beef yeah and you serve it over toast yep that sounds british to me um it sounds southern to me but i think it's like i have very old grandparents and this is Mm -hmm. exactly what we grew up eating yeah so hoover stew is the next one hoover dam so we have uh have we talked about this so um they they called the um people like people who are experiencing homelessness during that time uh-huh. um the camps that they were living in uh the community areas that they were living in they called hoovervilles oh that's right i'd forgotten that from the first president during the wow Great yeah i don't know that i'd ever put that together yeah so that's really fascinating so Hoovervilles or shanty towns that sprang up during the Depression weren't the only things named after the 31st president who had uh, the misfortune of electing of being elected just before the crash. So also and then making piss fuck, poor yeah, choices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, this is from a mentalfloss.com article. Is where I'm sourcing this from. So Hoover stew was given to the name of this particular soup. So one recipe called for cooking a 16-ounce bottle of noodles. And by bottle, I mean box. (laughs) So I'll say, what's a bottle of noodles? (laughs) Like macaroni or spaghetti, but I'm going with macaroni. Um, While this was on the stove, slice some hot dogs into little slices, rounds. Uh Um, Drain the pasta, and when it's almost done, return it to the pot drop in the hot dogs okay then you add two cans of stewed tomatoes um and one corn of peas or cash one (laughs) one can of corn or peas (laughs) oh no good that sounds so like did you i said one corn of porn yes you did (laughs) i was waiting for your brain to compute um but it sounds like yeah. in college when we were all broke and eating like ramen with hot dogs in it. Mm-hmm. Did you ever go through that phase of college? I ate ramen. I've always had ramen. Ramen is so damn good. It's so good. But we used to put hot dogs in it um, and or have mac and cheese with hot dogs in it. Usually vegan hot dogs. But So to me, this is like this is like coming through our current times, too, because all of these foods are still really like the, popular the most affordable yeah like and macaroni healthy hot dogs all that shit like people are still serving this stuff today yeah so the next is egg drop soup oh. which is interesting because um you know again it's mixing different cultures um but you know essentially egg drop soup 
is, you know, cracking a raw egg into boiling broth. Right. Um, and I'm sure some of the seasoning was what varied between, you yeah, know, Yeah, they probably southern, southern-fied mm-hmm. it. Southern-fied. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, I feel like putting an egg in soup... Like, I, I know that it's connected to Chinese culture mm-hmm. and their egg drop soup, but I wonder... I don't know. I'd, I'd be interested to learn more about that. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, and how similar yeah. or different they would be. Yeah. I don't have the answers, unfortunately. But the last one we are going to talk about is frozen fruit salad. <laughs> Throw gelatin. Basically, you're throwing vegetables and fruit into gelatin. Yeah. My, so, grandmother, my grandmother used to make it with carrots. Your like grandmother used shredded to make carrots. It with, shredded carrots? Shredded carrots, That makes yeah. it worse somehow for oh. me. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. So, wait, wait. Was this like a mold? Yeah, she had like a gelatin mold and... Wait, how big? Show me with your hands. Um, maybe like the size of a Bundt cake. <gasps> That's what I'm envisioning. Uh, I also feel like this is something that carried through like the 1950s and 60s when Jello food was still really popular. Yeah, you're not wrong. Um, but I remember eating it when I was young and visiting her house and we had to ask her to stop making it because Jacob and I refused to eat it at some point. Well, because it's fucking disgusting. And it was orange Jello. I don't know <gasps> what flavor it Like, I don't know if it was flavored orange or if the color was just orange or if the carrots had something to do with it. Oh my God. I'm so sorry for you. I have so many questions now. If she, I'm so sorry. God rest her soul. If she put carrots in orange jello, Uh you're allergic to orange. I wasn't at that time. I developed that allergy later. Okay, good. Yeah. She's trying to send you into anaphylactic shock. <laughs> uh, she was also the worst cook known to man. And she had a bachelor's degree in home ec. Oh, my God. I know. A bachelor's degree in home ec. And could not cook to save her life. She could bake, I think. I'm still digesting that she has a bachelor's degree in home ec. Yeah. Um, she was an excellent seamstress. Good. That's good. Yep. I don't know what to say. She was a phenomenal woman. But could not cook to save her life. Well, to be fair, not everybody can cook. That's why you need our pasta recipe, which can be found (laughs) on our Patreon at any tier. I love it. So, my friend, that is what I have for you for the Great Depression. I learned so much from you today. Thank you. Well, I learned a lot from you. I was... I think we talked about that case in my, that one AP psychology class I took. Uh And I think talking about intersection this week, it comes back just to maybe like carrying those ideas or phobias or, I mean, because I think everybody born or who grew up during the Great Depression is paranoid to a certain extent. Yeah. So maybe carrying that throughout the rest of your own life. Yeah. Well, and I think the way that social condi- conditioning, maybe not specifically classical conditioning, but the way that social conditioning impacts behavior. So classical conditioning be like is the the fear response that we talked about. Mm-hmm. And social conditioning being the way that society conditions you to behave in a specific way. Um, yeah. Well, and the fear too, like back to like okay so if somebody is born or raised Mm -hmm. in the depression era or even a child 
you still have X number of years before you leave the home. And so your parents, the ones who have been surviving during this time, are then going to be teaching you how to live in those circumstances. So yeah, yeah, I think you you carry that paranoia and that fear forever and always. Amen. Yeah. Um, to bring this all, well, bring it all back. Before I bring it all back, I do want to tie this also to epigenetics because I think that there's an interesting Ooh, correlation yes. between the Great Depression, the experiences in the 1920s and 30s to our episode that, where we talked about epigenetics and yeah. trauma yeah. and how that shapes generations. Yeah. So that would be a really interesting research topic for anyone who feels so inclined. I don't know that we are going to <laughs> dig too much deeper into that right now, but when we think about intersections... We're not just looking at, you know, within this episode, but within things that we've covered in the past. Mm-hmm. So, but to bring this all together through bring fried green now, tomatoes. Y'all. Oh, through fried green tomatoes? Through fried green tomatoes. So, timeline oh, yeah. for you uh-huh. right there. Also, fears and phobias. Her brother was hit by a train, and then her pseudo son was also hit by a train. I bet she had the worst phobia of trains. Oh, we're talking about... Um, Iggy. Iggy. Yeah. yeah. And Ruth, for sure. Okay, so you would have had to have seen those movies to get that reference, but... And this is all spoiler alerts. Oh, I mean... Okay, so... Get her- it together. If you haven't watched the movie... <laughs> what are you doing with your life? Listen right... I mean, listen to the end of this, but then but then go watch it. So, Iggy's um, older brother, who's like her very best friend, is hit by a train. His name is Buddy. He's bonafide. Okay, so, and then, so, and then her, so, but we hear the train whistle. Yeah. And then we hear screaming, and then we find out that Buddy Sr. and Buddy Jr. have both been hit by a train. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, like, at what point are you conditioned to hear a train whistle and all of a sudden just assume that someone has been hit by a train? Or bring back all that trauma. Yeah. All right, so you linked it to Frank Green Tomatoes. And yeah, that was my challenge. Absolutely. So Amen. Accepted. Yep. Great job. Great job. I am very pleased with our two segments today. Me so too. This was fun. It was really fun. Um, and thank you guys so much for listening. I know I brought up the Patreon. Definitely check it out. Um, you can pick our topics for us if you would like. Um, super fun. You can get super creative with it. You can choose either a history psychology or our once a month cult adjacent episode topics oh i didn't know that was up for grabs oh it for sure is up for grabs. get on that also we're looking for excellent movie suggestions specifically cult movies to add to our list so keep those coming yeah and definitely if you haven't left us a review on apple podcast that really helps us out a lot we have really enjoyed hearing um what you guys have had to say um, definitely warms our hearts for sure. Five sure. So thank you guys so much for listening. If you support us, blink twice. And if you're out there, keep listening. Thank you for listening to Podcast Without an Audience. Find us on social media at Pod Without an Odd. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook. Or find us on the web at podcastwithoutanaudience.com. Shoot us an email at podwithoutanodd at gmail.com. Our cover art is created by an actual angel, Ashley Acevedo. Our music is by Zach Smith and Ted Oliver. Editing by Jacob Beeson. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and all of our nerdy content. 
please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us today. Oh, and check out our Patreon for exclusive content and our pasta recipe. Again, thanks and keep listening. Are you the type of person who loves learning about everything macabre? Like how many people die in amusement parks every year? Or if you have what it takes to survive a night in an extreme haunted house? Or what exactly is the dark web? Join us as we talk about all these things and more on our podcast, Booze and Beaches and Booze. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy your favorite podcasts. We release new episodes every Wednesday. That's Booze, B-O-O-S, and Beaches, B-E-E-T-C-H-E-S, and Booze, B-O-O-Z-E. Bye, Bye, Beaches!